you know when you're working a night shift and it's 3 a.m. and it's like, are we drunk or delirious? I'm Emily. And I'm Hannah. And you're listening to Drunk or Delirious, a night shift podcast. guys welcome to another episode of drunk or delirious we're your hosts hannah and emily this week we have another super special guest someone that's super near and dear to my heart and a total badass nurse my cousin keith he is a transport nurse in minnesota um welcome to the podcast keith thanks for having me happy to be here yeah, this is awesome. I'm so glad we got this um, timing worked out. Um, and you just came off night shift. Well, you've Oh, yeah, I'm <laughs> on a streak of nights right now. So I am. It's, it's perfect timing for your podcast. Yeah. Oh, man. Hope you yeah. don't have to work tonight. Oh, I do. <laughs> oh, God. Why are you up so early? <laughs> wow, you could have been. <laughs> oh, oh, don't God. worry. I'm going back to bed a little bit later. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you're oh, able to God. do that. You're able to like take a nap, wake up. Be, yeah, be fresh yeah. and then go back to bed after that. Well, you know, I got to wake up and eat. I'm kind of like a hibernating bear. Oh my God, that's so funny. I was just talking to, this is a complete side note, but a girl that I just went on vacation with was like, yeah, I wake up in the middle of the night every night and I have to have a snack or I'm going to pass out. I was like, what? Oh my gosh. I, I don't hmm. feel like that's um, healthy. Uh, <laughs> something's going on there with your body that you need to eat that often, but Complete. I digress. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah. So we usually start this out having you just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, My name is Keith. I've been a nurse. I work for a company called Lifelink 3 uh, based out of Bloomington, Minnesota, which is based in the suburb of Minneapolis. Um, I've been a nurse since 1997. So I've been at the game for uh, quite a while. I uh, went into nursing to be a flight nurse. I was, um, I didn't, when I was 19 or so, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do something healthcare related. I was taking an EMT course uh, just to kind of get my foot in the door of doing something. I wanted to run on the ambulance. And during a break at school, my instructor at the time, who was a paramedic, said, you know, if I could go back and do things over, I'd get a nursing degree and I'd be a flight nurse. And I was literally like, what? What's a flight nurse? What is that? And once he explained it to me, I knew that very moment, uh, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I was just absolutely sure. And so I went on to nursing school later on, um, picked up a a bunch of different kinds of experience and got on to a flight crew in 2005 was when I initially started uh, flying. So I've been, um, I flew part-time initially uh, with an organization, North Memorial Healthcare, uh, with air care and loved being there, but wanted to do it full-time and switched over to LifeLink and have been there since, you know, LifeLink since 2010. And it's been a phenomenal move. Love the company and I love, love, love what I do. It's been great. Wow. Yeah. That is so cool. That's a lot of experience. (laughs) Yeah. And I left a lot of it out because I didn't want to get boring about it, but I've been, I've worked in a a number of different hospitals and different ICUs and and Mm in different emergency departments in large metro areas and also in small town, um, local critical access hospitals here. 
Um, and all of the experience has been every little bit that I've done has helped my primary job tremendously. Honestly, yeah, it's been really great. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. You don't look old enough to be having done that since 1997. <laughs> oh, well, you're very kind. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so almost my whole life. <laughs> I was yeah. a 94 baby. So well, there you go. Yes. Almost your whole life. Yeah. <laughs> That's, That's amazing though. Um, so you do transports for pretty much all ages. Yeah. Or... So okay. we, it's, uh, Yes, primarily all ages. So we, um, majority of our transport volume is adult. About 10% of our transports are pediatric. But then we also, our company does um, a like a partnership with local hospitals that have um, neonatal intensive care units. Uh, and so there are a few hospitals in this area, two of them in the Twin Cities metro area. There's one in Duluth, Minnesota. And then we also have a base in Marshfield, Wisconsin, and that hospital has a, a NICU as well. And so we partner with those transport teams to, to get them out to the patients and bring them back. So our normal medical crew is a crew of two medical people and a pilot. When we partner with the NICU teams, then we'll leave one of our medical crew members behind and pick up two NICU team members, put their isolate on the aircraft and then fly out to get the patient and, and bring them back to, to the NICU. So we, in uh, those, they do really the heavy lifting and are the primary care folks. We are, um, we just sort of support them and assist with anything that they need assistance with. Uh, but they do, uh, they do the primary work on those NICU transports. So we do, uh, we see all ages. Absolutely. Very cool. Yeah. Kind of leads us into our little icebreaker. Would you rather question? Exactly. Um, so would you rather just get your typical, like, I don't know what typical is really in adult land, but like an adult trauma that's very vague, but maybe um, like a ski accident or something like that, like a head injury. Um, or would you rather do a neonatal transport? Does that freak you out at all? Oh, uh, if my colleagues would be laughing if they heard this question. So I, I would rather every day do the adult uh, trauma patient. So I, I like uh, love actually, I love the NICU teams that we work with. They're a blast uh, to work with. But it's like I said, they are the primary care people, so they mm -hmm. do all the decision making and do all and, and really do all of the work and the interventions. Whereas in the adult world, we do all of the decision making, intervention stuff. So I like to be right in the mix. So I would always mm -hmm. I would I would prefer to do the adult transport for sure. Yeah, because then we're right in there. Cool. Oh gosh, what was my question going to be? Is it is it a made up of like one RN and then an RT? Oh yes, and like, so that varies. It is typically. Um, actually, I'm going to say that it's fairly evenly split. So some of the teams in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis-St. Paul will do um, uh, an NP and an RN, depending on the call. Sometimes they may bring in a respiratory therapist with. Mm -hmm. Other teams are made up of always. Uh, a nurse practitioner and a respiratory therapist. Um, and in, well, and, uh, in fact, actually, the Marshfield crews will do uh, a NICU RN and a respiratory therapist. So they don't bring an advanced provider yeah. along on their transports. Yeah, the, the staff RNs, the ones that are trained to do transport, are the ones that go out in the field to, uh, to pick up the kiddo. So yeah, yeah it, really, it really varies. In, in particular, in those NICU teams, there's a lot of variation in the, in the team makeup. And it really... It, Sometimes it depends on what kind of kiddo they're going out for. 
Totally. Yeah. yeah. The transport team that was at my original hospital um, was a transport RN and then the transport RT. Um, yeah. One of them is one of my close friends who you will actually, she's in my bridal party. So you'll meet her at the wedding. Oh, <laughs> but, cool. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. She's, uh, she, that, it's so freaking cool. We were talking about it when we were talking to another NICU transport nurse last week, but she only does, um, not only, she does ground transit. Oh yeah. And that's typical too. The transport teams that we work with, well, um, they don't always fly. Oftentimes it's ground. In fact, one of the uh, um, hospitals in Minneapolis has a dedicated transport ambulance that is amazing. It's huge and it's super, super nicely outfitted. It's, it's quite the machine. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. um, so with your team, when you're doing adults, what is that makeup? You said it's usually two medical providers. Yeah. So we always do a nurse and a paramedic. And okay. th- th- there's a reason for that. And that is it's a perfect blend of skill sets um, mm-hmm. to to get on a transport team. Uh, as a nurse, you have to have three years of ICU experience. It's nice to have okay. emergency department uh, experience as well. So that's kind of like baseline for the nursing part of it. And then paramedics will have uh, up to three years of experience in a really busy, large um, EMS system. And so the reason when you blend those two skill sets, because we do, a lot of people imagine that we do, we're always flying to car crashes. And that's in actuality, that's really only about 20% of the volume that we do. Most of what we do are inter-facility transport. So we'll fly to a small hospital where- You know, Mima's having a heart attack and she's in this tiny little small hospital and she needs to get an hour away or 45 minutes away to a cath lab. And so those are the patients that we pick up. Um, That's a majority of what we do. But we'll also do from um, a fairly major intensive care unit, a patient to a different higher specialty hospital. So we'll walk into uh, an example is walking to Duluth St. Mary's, which is a very, very capable, very big hospital, um, very high level ICU. But there's somebody there that maybe needs to go on ECMO down in the metro. Mm. So we'll walk into this patient with nine drips, weird vent settings, a bunch of stuff going on. And so the nurse in that in that setting, the nurse is very used to that. The nurse is very experienced in that. Um, and our paramedics have gotten amazingly good and, and used to that as well. But that's where the nurse skill set comes in. Mm-hmm. And then out in the field and in your facility stuff, when you're landing in a highway and there's cop cars and fire trucks and, and carnage everywhere, you know, that's the kind of bread and butter that the medics grow up in, so to speak. So right. their skill set is primarily, that's what we work off in that setting too. And again, you know, the nurses who have done transport for a long time have become very used to that as well. So, but yeah. that's the, the, those different kinds of calls, those different kinds of transports are the reason why we have those two different kinds of providers to really give us a super nice dovetail in uh, skill sets. Yeah. So we're, wow. you know, the theory is that we're ready for any, any kind of thing that we're called. Anything. Yeah. That's so cool. That's super um Flight nursing and transport nursing, it always sounds so cool in theory to me, but I I feel like I would get so anxious and it's just like very intimidating. I know you've been doing it for a while, so I'm sure it's just like anything else. Like it, a lot of it just comes with experience. But when you first started, were you nervous about it at all or just Oh, gosh, I'm so nervous. I mean, yeah. yes, yes and yes. I was so excited because it was – I was, I dreamt about it. I mean, it's just something that I thought, oh my gosh, you know, one day. And then I would, when I was working in the hospitals, gaining experience and I'd see flight crews, I would look at them and be like, 
gosh, I can't wait one day. And then you finally get on the team and you're so excited. But then it's so foreign to what we know as nurses that I was like, what am I doing? You know, you know you're outside. Yeah, I mean, let's start with that. You're outside. You know, it's it's cold. It's hot depending where you are. You're in this vehicle that's really surprisingly small. Lots of people when they when they visit us or when we go somewhere to do public relation events or whatever, they're like, that's all the space you get in there. I mean, it's cozy inside. That aircraft. <laughs> so that's a logistical thing that you try to get used to is working in there. And then just pre-hospital medicine, you're, you know, as nurses, we learn how to, you know, evaluate and do real good assessments and a little, um, uh, um, a little bit of diagnostic stuff. Right. But we get very diagnostic uh, in pre-hospital medicine and we are working strictly off of guidelines and protocols. Like we don't, I don't take doctor's orders for anything. So I'm, mm -hmm. we are, as the team, we are the one making the decisions and like, mm -hmm. you know, what's the, you know, uh, we're going to RSI somebody. So like we decide which medicines we're going to use for that. This patient needs a lot more sedation and we just decide how much that sedation that's going to be, you know, which is honestly pretty sweet. You know what I mean? Yeah, Think about the times yeah. you've like, Hey, a I can really autonomy. use more sedation and you get, you get an order and you're like, ah, that is like exactly half of what I actually need. Well, I, that's a, a bonus is that I don't, if we need more, we just give more and we just chart that in the in the record. So that's pretty nice. So I was, you know, getting back to your question, I was very, very intimidated, um, very nervous first getting started, but just loving it so much. And it takes a while. Nurses in particular take longer to transition to this kind of work just because it's very foreign to us, whereas paramedics oftentimes just fall right into it. They're used to the variability. They're used to the austere environments. They're used to working in a small space. They're used to making split second decisions without consulting with the physician about that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it takes nurses typically a little bit longer to get a feel for it. Um, but honestly, everyone loves it very quickly. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. pretty great. That makes sense too, I think, especially if it, you have, you need, um, ICU experience to be able mm -hmm. to become a flight nurse. ICU nurses are like so OCD and like mm. they like, you know, their things a certain way. And then wow. I'm sure flight nursing is just like a complete shock to the system. So you it makes sense why you said that, like yeah. ER experience would be. <laughs> yeah, good. honestly, uh, really, I really, here's the dream nurse, you know, like as far as a candidate that if I could handpick somebody, somebody who's got at least three years of and I'm, I'm going to be biased here, but um, CVICU experience is so incredibly valuable. valuable. Oh, yeah. you, get to, you get to use all of the medications, all the vasoactive stuffs, and you get a really, really strong understanding of the hemodynamics, which is it's huge to have that understanding of how hemodynamics work and, and, and where you can affect them in resuscitation. Like that, that understanding is, is so, so critical. So a, a really good CVICU nurse um, that has some ER experience and, and honestly, preferably some small town ER experience because you, uh, small town ERs, those nurses are the jacks of all trades, man, because they don't oh, have yeah. IV teams. Uh, and heck at nighttime, they sometimes don't even have lab or, uh, you know, they are uh, medical records. Like they are doing everything and they're mm -hmm. learning to do it with limited resources, which is kind of what we do as well. So a CVIC nurse with some good ER background, and even, you know, if he or she's done a little bit of EMT work on the side, like that is the, that is the picture perfect uh, flight nurse candidate. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
Yeah, CVICU, I've had to to float there a couple of times at the last mm. like children's hospital I worked at. And I was like, I, this is not for me. Or at least like, <laughs> I was like a fish out of water. I was like, I mean, I've been a NICU nurse for six years, but like, we don't do, we don't do this. No, <laughs> Like it was, so, it's very intimidating and you have to know, they know their shit. They're yeah. incredibly smart. It's very impressive. <laughs> The fun part about CVIC is you get a lot of, especially when the kids have lines in them, you get a lot of data to work off of. And that's mm-hmm. what I loved about it too. You know, you, you get a, a, some hemodynamic values and you can figure out like exactly, you know, is this a pump problem or is this, you know, are they too vasodilated? Do they need more fluid? Like you can really kind of hone in on what the real problem is. That's what's so fun about um, the hemodynamics and, and CVICU work is is that uh, there's a, there's less mystery and you get to you know evaluate that that data that's coming in from your your monitoring lines to make decisions and that's super super fun. Yeah, that is uh I mean we get like some of that in the NICU with um you know we have art lines and having to titrate mm. our dopamine and certain um other pressors but like that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, so, and yeah. at a certain That's... point we send them to the CVICU if they like, really need to yeah. be there, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I remember floating too when I was at Children's in Colorado one time and they were like he's so easy. He's from the NICU, he's a baby, like it's probably just like what you're used to taking care of whatever. And I'm like, "Oh my god, I look into the room and there's just like I I I don't know, like 10 drips just like <laughs> And, and then I had to like string the fluids and I was like, kill me now. like panicking. Like, <laughs> am I going to kill this kid right now? I, I mean, it was, it was fine. Like, but it's just, I'm not used to doing mm-hmm. that many, you know, usually it's just like one or two or something, or an, especially as a traveler, they give us, they tend to give us easier babies. So, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of get out of practice with all that. So yeah, yeah. I'm with you, Emily. <laughs> They definitely do tend to give you, give you the easier assignment, except for it's with small town hospitals. I just did a travel assignment up at a little tiny, tiny NICU in Northern, like 45 minutes North of Denver. And it was literally all travelers and at night, at least all travelers at night. And the NP was there, but like they slept all night and we went to all the deliveries and like, there's no resources. And we just had to do everything. And it was a really, it was a really good experience. Like it was like, Ooh, I still got it. Like I know what I'm doing because <laughs> the day shift yes. nurses were like a little scary in terms <laughs> of what they knew. Cause they don't get acuity there very often. And um, when they do, they like don't know what to do. So, but we got that That's at scary. night and we had to, I mean, it's me and one other nurse in the NP and we have to stabilize and, do everything ourselves and that's all we got there's no doctor i mean the doctor's on call but you know yeah not there really good experience but also like a lot of uh pressure (laughs) yeah that seems like some stress (laughs) just a little bit but most nights were very chill but the nights when we did have stuff go down i was like wow i'm glad this happened on night shift because you could handle it days would have had a literal panic attack Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So is your, your schedule is typically three twelves still? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Our full-time for us, it's like any, most nurses anyway, three twelves a week. Yeah. And we, 
bounce back and forth between days and nights. Oh, you do. How often do you have to do that? Um, our, we have a, a really weird block schedule. It's a five week block schedule and it's pretty much split in half between days and nights. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I've done that too. At least you get a break, I guess. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. There's most of the time there is a nice, at least one day of a transition period. Yeah. I think he was saying that it's like, there's a five week period, but it's just days and nights, half and half throughout that, like sprinkled around. Oh, it's not like. Like five weeks at a time of days or five. Oh, nope. Nope. Yeah. Even we split of days and nights in within that five week block. So like, can you have a week that's like both or will they keep you like your night shift this week? Yeah. It would usually be like, you'd be finished off your weekend with, um, uh, you know, and the weekends always blend into the next week. So you'd finish off your weekend with, uh, like a Monday night shift and then you'd go to days on like Thursday, Friday, the next Mm. week or later that week or something like that. So you do usually get a a couple of days of transition time. Okay. I've so definitely here's the, done that. Here's the dirty little secret of, of flight nursing, you guys, is that like on night shift, if I'm not flying, I'm sleeping. Yeah. Oh. That's, yeah. So we, um, you know, we have, and this is really typical, some hospital-based systems don't get to sleep at night. If you're based at a hospital, you are, you know, working, you're down working in the ER or you're, mm-hmm. you are the IV start person within the facility. So our flight services that are hospital-based, those those night shifters do not get to go to bed. We are not that type of system. So we are at small airports typically or mm-hmm. medium-sized airports. And so we have, um, let's call, we'll call them offices for our for the staff, but the offices have a desk and a bed in them. And so Very at, nice. at night when, or during the day, if if you want, if necessary, if uh, if you're not out on a call and you don't have other work to do, you can shut the door and turn the lights off and grab some sleep. So, oh, that's great. Yeah, that is, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah you need that's, it. That's so. great. And yeah, so, nice. and that's the thing is, so the, the other um, unusual or noteworthy part about flight is that it's exhausting. It's absolutely oh yeah exhausting. So there's something that you know. Uh, within flight physiology, they talk about the stressors of flight. So it's the noise and it's the change in altitude mm-hmm. and it's the, um, you know, the, the very hot, the very cold in these austere environments. Well, those really do make you physically very, very tired. So I had a shift just a few days ago um, and my partner, Alex, and I flew all night long. But what that means is we, we only had three patients because mm-hmm. it took, you know, it just takes that long to go right. out and do three transports. But we were absolutely destroyed in the morning. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, I mean, you know, I do night shifts and I have a little part-time gig in a local ER too where I'm, I work nights and I'm up all night. But I am 100% far more tired at the end of a night shift flying if you've gone yeah. out and done transports all night than when I finish a night shift in the ER over here. It is just absolutely, yeah, I mean, we just, we were smoked at the end of that, uh, at the end of that shift. So yeah. um, you're you know, we, I joke about it being the dirty little secret, but for real, um, you do need to try to stay well rested because there's a big, there's a big safety component to this job mm-hmm. too. That is not a part of any other kind of nursing because we're flying, you know? And so we need to be vigilant for hazards of, uh, when you're flying, you know, other aircraft we need to watch out for, we need to watch out for, you know, 
birds, large or small, you know, and um, oh you're landing in places where there's, you know, there might be telephone lines or mailboxes or, you know, wow. um, telephone poles or stuff. So we have to be really, really sharp on the safety part too. And so staying rested and staying healthy is a big part of that. So our company, and rightly so, really, really pushes like get your rest during your shift because you may need to be a little extra sharp later on to make sure that you are not landing somewhere that's that's dangerous or missing something that's happening that could be the first link in a chain of events where there might be an incident. So um, it is strongly encouraged to like, yep, make sure you get your rest. Our, our leadership and our bosses are great about about pushing that safety component too. It's really nice. Good. I mean, yeah, that that's really, really good. <laughs> I can imagine just, yeah, the the stress on your body. I mean, even just like going on a flight and like traveling in general is like, mm-hmm. I feel like makes anyone really tired. So to like do sure. that three times a night with all of the other added stressors involved in that, like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh. And you live in Minnesota. Yeah. Like the winter yeah. is no joke. Dude. <laughs> I swear every, like, I can't imagine doing anything else. I just, I love this so much, but I am telling you every winter gets a little harder. You know, there's nothing worse than 3am in January and it's 20 below. And you're like, why the, do I do this? I mean, why aren't I in Florida right now? Yeah. So so, yeah, it's uh, and everything's harder when it's cold too. You know, I mean, our patients are freezing. Um, our lines are freezing, you know, it's, uh, we have to, when it gets super, you know, like classic Minnesota oh cold, gosh. when it gets uh, sub zero, we got to keep the pumps and the lines tucked in the blankets with the patient or they will, uh, if they're supposed to line, they'll freeze. Oh, so, that's crazy. My gosh. Yeah. And that yeah, would be yeah. so cold going into someone's bloodstream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, oh exactly. So like, so, um, ECMO transports, we will, we had to build in um, weather limitations for ECMO folks because there's so sure. much volume circulating outside the body yes. that we oh, yeah. we just don't have the ability to keep to protect that and keep that warm. And we're you know patients could get real real sick um, yeah. with that going on. You know they're already oh anticoagulated, and then we bring their body temp down. It's like it's you know oh, not, yeah, it's, it's not good. There's so, a lot that you have to think about. Yep. There's a bunch of stuff. There's a bunch of stuff to add to already super sick patients, these environmental stuff and safety and operational things. And, you know, helicopters are finicky machines. You know what I mean? Uh, Cars are are one thing, but helicopters are so finicky that you get mechanical little issues. And it's never, you know, knock on wood, never anything where like an engine stops, right? Or mm-hmm. transmission stops, but it's all these little different. There's so many sensors built into these aircraft that if you get, you know, something, a sensor that's picking up something off, it'll be like, okay, well, we can't go now. And, and that happens sometimes when we get to the place we're picking the patient up and something's gone wrong with the helicopter. And now we're stuck there until we can get it fixed. And so a mechanical have to come out and we'll send a different aircraft to make the transport happen. And so things can get pretty, they can get pretty complicated. Oh that doesn't happen very mm-hmm. often. But when you do this work full time, like, and for as yeah. long as I've been doing it, like, yeah, well, I've got a, you know, a bunch of stories about getting somewhere and then the aircraft, you know, air quotes broke. And now we're stuck trying to figure out like, okay, how are we going to move this patient? Cause the patient's still, still super sick. We just lost our vehicle for transport. That's all. So we have to figure Gosh. out, do we get a local ambulance and then we move all of our stuff into the ambulance and do this transport by ground? Or do we fly into the helicopter there? Do we fly the airplane there? 
to make this happen. There's a bunch oh, of wow. different stuff that goes into, can go into a transport. Oh, you guys have like an airplane too. I mean, I don't know why that is so surprising to me, but. Um. Well, yeah, we do. Not every service does. We do have a, um, it's called a Pilatus PC-12. It's a single prop uh, aircraft that is typically regional aircraft, although it's, it has capability. We can go nationwide with it. I've done wow. transports to Texas from Minnesota with that aircraft and oh, wow. um, Philadelphia, that kind of thing. So it's not usually something for that, but it can do that. So yeah, if, uh, and the reason, one of the reasons why we have it is for distance of, uh, of course, but also weather. So mm-hmm. weather is another, you know, um, factor in what we can and cannot do. Our, we are, t- are primarily a VFR, which stands for Visual Flight Rules Program with our helicopters versus what would be IFR or Instrument Flight Rules. So what that means is the, cl- the ceiling deck or the clouds have to be high enough that we can fly high enough for our aircraft and see long enough distance underneath them um, to be within those visual flight rules. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be like about a thousand feet off the ground for that ceiling or 1500 feet, somewhere between there. And then be able to see depending on day versus night or three miles or up to five miles to, again, depending on day versus night. And so if the clouds are too low or the visibility is too close, mm-hmm. then we would not be within those visual flight rules. So that's a time when we might take an airplane to do a transport that we would normally send helicopter for because the plane can fly within instrument flight rules and the plane can also fly with with if there's a little bit of icing so if there's precipitation up high and the temperature is cold enough where it might freeze on the wings this plane has de-icing capabilities so we can fly in a little bit of icing with that airplane so it's another reason why the plane might go out instead of the helicopter so my gosh I would never know that. That's crazy. This is like fascinating. So if you take, (laughs) if you take the plane, I'm assuming they land at an airport close by and then you have to take an ambulance. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Wow. Oh my gosh. It's like terrifying, but fascinating. Um, (laughs) Have you, so they've flown all the way to Texas for a transport? Yeah. Yeah. I've done. seems um, like. Yep. I've done with this company I've done. The furthest one is probably San Jose, California. I've done really? Houston, Texas. Wow. Um, Philly, there's a children's hospital, CHOP, Children's Hospital, yeah. Philadelphia. I worked there. We, Ed, yeah, well, cool. That's, uh, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm really highly renowned children's hospital. And so we, we had a special patient that's actually from my hometown uh, that would go there with some regularity and we would fly him back and forth for his oh, special no. procedure that he had done. Oh, my so, gosh. Um, we got to know this little boy and his family really Aww. well, um, which was That's really cool. great. He wasn't very, you know, acutely ill, but he yeah. had a, a really unique procedure that he could only have done there. So I've done that flight a couple of times at least. And and many of us have done that flight because he went back and forth for years to have this oh, procedure done. So just yeah, got to go to Philly real quick. That's yep, so crazy. Let's, <laughs> let's take this little kiddo dog out to Philly. Yep. Wow. Oh my gosh. And in San Jose, what was that? We went out there to pick up a kiddo that was born prematurely out there, but they were from Minnesota. So uh, she was, she was a preemie and she got old enough to tolerate the transport. mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Kind of. And then, uh, uh, so we went out to fly her home and I chuckle and say kind of because she had, boy, she was, that's the most scared for a patient that I've been on the flight oh. ever and i hope i will never in that space again she was so brittle with her oxygenation needs that if you 
every time you suctioned her, you had to pre-oxygenate, you oh. like had to all caps pre-oxygenate this, this little kiddo and then plan for the dump in her oxygenation uh, sats after her, after mm-hmm. you suctioned her. But there was no avoiding the suction because if you just let that go, you were going to lose her completely. Yeah. And so there was a number of times during this trip back where um, her sats, and guys, I'm talking like they'd fall down to 50, 60. And you're just sitting there <laughs> staring at the plethora waveform going, come on. Okay. There's 61. Okay. There's 62. And you're just <laughs> sweating bullets. And, and Nikki you life. know, dude, you're, you're like, yeah, yeah, Nikki life, but like we're 10,000 feet, 15,000 yeah. feet over yeah. the middle of yeah. Nebraska with like, dramatic we can that. call a Hail Mary, but there ain't no Hail Mary to be called. Like you're just hoping to God she comes back up to where she's supposed to be. And she, she did, but <sighs> I have never been happier to hand a patient off at the end of a transport than that time. <laughs> Here you go. She's yours. I don't want another minute with this kiddo. Oh my gosh. That's funny when you say 50 to 60 like that. I mean, that's low, definitely. In, but like, I feel like in NICU, that's like so common too. I feel like I get like, I'm like, oh, 80, like I'm not going to get up yet. I don't even see what they yeah, do. Like, whatever. like <laughs> mid 70s, I'm like, okay, like starting to move. And yeah. then like, mm-hmm. yeah, like 60s is when I'm like, okay, let's go. But yeah, we've had, I mean, Oh I've, my seen gosh, I used to have, I've seen six. I've seen yeah six, which I don't Ugh. think it is even accurate under twenty. But we've definitely yeah. like, I had this kid recently that would just like Brady and then decide into the thirties, and I'd be like, okay, like this just sigh really quick, and yeah. Then like, oh, you decided to come back. Thank you. <laughs> Let's gosh. come back to life. Oh that's yeah, like that's- um, Tia's one of her reels. Our last guest, she made a really funny reel, and it was like. I don't know what it was from, but it was like, good morning, starshine. The earth says hello. <laughs> and it was really funny. But it was she was just talking about kids that like Brady D set that dramatically. Yeah, you're like, welcome back. <laughs> Gosh, no kidding. Yeah, that's harrowing. That's Very not scary. a fun feeling. No. Yeah, it's it's a, I mean, both of these jobs. I mean, the NICU is can be draining. Um for sure. It's very emotionally, uh, mentally draining, not as much physically because I feel like we sit on our asses most of the night. But, um, do you, through the last like couple of years, have you felt any shift in like your, um, resiliency or mindset or anything with the, um, pandemic? Yeah, I think, I think we all have, whether you wanted to or didn't want to, if you were taking care of sick people in the last couple of years, like it was sink or swim Mm -hmm. from an emotional standpoint. And sadly, many of us, and when I say us, I mean nurses, but I really mean all healthcare people because I don't want to just, you know, we're part of a really, really big team, right? Um, Many of, of us in healthcare just were like, I'm out can't do this and it was from a standpoint of i mean have you ever seen so many people die yeah right? have you ever seen so many have you ever had so many shifts where you're like um god i'm getting emotional talk about it. like have you ever seen so yeah. many times of like where it didn't make sense too 
you know, yeah. it was like, mm-hmm. you know, COVID had a certain, um, took a certain kind of patient, patients with, you know, a lot of risk factors, but it also would out of the blue, take a 40 year old triathlete for right. no good reason. And, you know, these families are devastated because this poor person just caught this virus that we didn't know shit about, you know, right. in the beginning, we were completely guessing, like, what yeah. is this all? Why is this acting this way? And, and we took the normal routes of things we knew, like with treatments, right? And so like we, you know, bought a bajillion ventilators and found out, oh shit, these ventilators are killing them. We didn't know. There was no way to know that until it was too late. And so um, it was so much death and, mm-hmm. um, and, and that was really hard. And it was, you know, everyone was working their asses off, you know, so much overtime. And, uh, you know, working overtime can be exhausting and just working overtime in a normal life is exhausting. And then when you're working overtime and you're in a war zone, you know, I remember going into the University of Minnesota, bringing a patient in to their COVID unit. And that looked like something out of a heckin' movie. It was, you know, giant cylinders of oxygen lining the walls with, um, tubing running in and out of rooms because they were just trying to keep up with oxygen demand for these patients. I have a friend that works out in New York state and um, he works for a flight um, company out there. And so when New York was getting destroyed, he sent me a text um, checking in with me. I said, Hey, what's it like there? And this is before it got bad in the Midwest. And I'm like, well, we're starting to see it, but it's not too bad. I'm like, what's it like for you? And so he was, they were working 24 hour shifts. And at the beginning of their shift, they would get a list of 20 or so transports to complete during this 24 hour period. That, and let's start with that. Like that is not a thing that you don't have people in waiting in a queue to be transported. That is not something that's normal part of life. So he'd start his shift and they'd fly into these hospitals and there would be three or four patients stacked in the ER room. You'd have to move some of these patients to get to the one that you're supposed to transport. And there's usually wasn't staff around to get report from because everybody's completely mm-hmm. just trying to keep their heads above water. Yeah. So you'd barely get a report. You'd get their chart. You'd make this transport. But he said as the day would progress, the list would change because so many people were dying on the list that they wouldn't get to them in time and they would just die. Oh, my God. And so it was just – and so you talk about exhaustion. You know, like I honestly feel like we were in the transport world are lucky because we didn't get it as bad as, as – nurses and at staff. I, mean, I don't want to just pinch the whole nurses uh, as staff in the hospital were getting it because it was constant there. We would at least have a little bit of break in between, mm-hmm. but our, you know, it, our flight volumes were uh, over the moon. We we're doing more transports than we had ever done. And our referral patterns were just weird. And by that, I mean, so you have a typical pattern of like, you know, let's just use some examples locally here. There's a little hospital in Osceola, Wisconsin, and they would typically fly people into Regents Hospital, which is a you know a very short flight. But the hospitals were so full that there was nowhere to put these patients. And so they would, A, board in these little ERs in these small towns, and which is also something that a small town nurse has no experience with whatsoever. You know, they learned what boarding was. They learned what how to manage ventilators because they just don't do it as small town hospitals. Mm-hmm. But then they would fly somebody which would normally maybe go to St. Paul. Well, now they're flying him to Madison, Wisconsin or Des Moines, Iowa, which is like, whew, that's just not something that happens. But because these, these, the Hucks were literally just calling every damn ICU saying, do you have a bed? And when they would find one, they'd be like, okay, we've got a patient for you. And then they mm-hmm. would send them to God knows where. 
to oh my gosh. so it was just it was so strange um the world was so so strange during that period of time it was really bad that yeah so you know back to the resiliency question we our company <laughs> i'm so happy that i work for the company that i work for they are they do a really really good job of looking out for us and so they really worked hard to are you how's your head how's your heart are you getting the rest that you need do you need to call a timeout during the shift we can do that if we need to do you need to just take a two or three hour break pull yourself out of service for a little bit they're very very supportive in that sense mm-hmm. and then they also like many you know there'd be the resiliency programs they've tried to get us um, involved with and, it, and a lot of it had to do with you know looking out for one another doing um stuff for your personal health um Gratitude work, honestly, uh, you know, making sure you're thankful for the good things in your life that you do have going on. And those things do work well. So, yeah, you know, in for the first time in my career, career as a nurse, you know, resiliency was something that kind of hung out in the background of like, mm-hmm. you know, and then you'd hear something, maybe there'd be an editorial on it somewhere. But now it's like very much the forefront. Mm-hmm. And I think wow. that that's really good because, um, you know, nursing, healthcare is hard. Um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it changes really, really fast and it's really hard work and there's a huge emotional component. Like you, I don't know. I think one thing we would do really well as nurses is we love these people, mm-hmm. you know? So, uh, it's hard not to be really deeply affected when you're taking care of somebody and you're like sleeves rolled up and you're in the trenches fighting for this person and then they, they die despite your best efforts. And you know, it's one thing when they're 90 something or 80 something, but it's a totally different thing when they're 14 yeah. or four, you know, like yeah. that cuts deep. And so it, uh, I'm glad to see the resiliency is becoming a, a bigger part of healthcare. And I think it's, it's, it's not too late. Um, um, but, uh, it's, it's too late for some of us. Mm-hmm. And when I say us, I do, mean, you know, like I just, I know a lot of nurses or a handful of nurses that away and can't do it anymore and i don't blame them i don't blame them at all but uh so it's it's good for the the rest of us that are still hanging in here and um still doing what we really really love doing uh to you know make sure that our heads and our hearts are okay so we can keep fighting for our patients man yeah absolutely i think um yeah that's just like it's so much for or just people too you know it's so much for a just a person to experience so much death mm-hmm. and trauma. Um, so that's good that your company seems like they are extremely supportive of their staff. Do they offer like therapy and things like that too? Yeah. We like, like really anybody, we have an EAP program and we have somebody on staff that we can call at any time. And that person will reach out to us. And even before, you know, before it was before COVID, you know, we, we get exposed to stuff that's hard, uh, yeah. emotionally hard. And, um, you know, for me, it's always the kids. Um, yeah. And so if you I have a particularly imagine. difficult call, and especially if there's kids involved, um, this person will reach out to you and just say, hey, you know, uh, just reminding you that I'm here. You don't have to talk, but um, mm-hmm. if you need to, and if you need, even if you just need direction to somebody different to talk to, like, let me help you with that. So that's a really yeah. nice service to have, for sure. That is nice. That's huge. And I feel like, I mean, I don't feel like I've been that supported in a lot of the hospitals that I've worked in, in the NICU. So I, mm-hmm. hopefully it's getting better, but it's definitely, um, not something that I've 
really experienced. Like there's been a couple times where we've like debriefed, but usually it's like, okay, see you, see you tonight. Like mm. you're expected Take to an just assignment. Be- oh, your patient just died. Here's your next assignment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> but I like, I think Hannah and I have said this a couple of times, like how grateful we are um, again, for just being in the NICU, I think during this pandemic, because we, mm. you know, we saw some cases of COVID in um, babies, but it really didn't affect them much versus like maybe they needed a little bit of high flow or anything, but um, it was mostly like the parents coming in and out of the hospital that would, they'd still like let them come in and like with COVID, I don't know. It was very weird. Um, Mm. But we did not have any sort of um, experience even close to what you had or what any um, adult or nurses. I I cannot imagine. Um, One of my good friends, she is a, um, an educator for a pulmonary pulmonary unit here in Colorado. She's told me last week, she had just had to open up another COVID unit. Really? Oh God! Yeah. Gosh, doesn't that make you cringe? Like, it's, please don't anybody say we're going to have another wave. I just don't. I don't know if we could take it. I don't. I mean, like, we would, right? Because you'd have to. But I just like it makes me honestly scared to think. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. How would we handle another wave? It's like we can like physically like in the hospitals, and you know, we I think we've figured it out, <laughs> like have more supplies yeah. and all of the things. But yeah. I don't know, yeah, if the nurses and the staff can emotionally can take it, emotionally yeah. take it. Um, but I'm I'm really glad to hear that you still love your job as you know much as you oh, did before, sure. and that's yeah. um, I think you know a rarity that we're finding amongst all of our colleagues as well. It was refreshing to hear that. Yeah, it it really is. Mm -hmm. It is. Um, I know whenever I I talk to you about your job, you're so passionate about it. And I love, I love that. Um, It's really cool to hear. I wanted to also ask you about um, is orientation like the typical 13 weeks for a flight nurse Mm -hmm. or is it longer? And I also wanted to ask if, you, I know you said um, the perfect candidate would be someone who has like three years CVICU and ER, but if there's anybody listening who's like, okay, this sounds really cool, like, do you have any other advice for somebody who um, maybe they're a new nurse or something and they're just starting out and they, or they're like, okay, I want to do this, but yeah, where do I begin? Yeah, for sure. So uh, I'm going to start with that piece. If you, if one is a new nurse and they're thinking that flight nursing sounds really, it's like something they would want to do. Um, I will start by saying, go for it. Absolutely. Just decide that that's what you want to do and keep banging away until you get there. It is absolutely worth every ounce of focus, every bit of learning, every day of patience to get to this job. Because it is, if you have a heart for adventure, if you don't mind um, your day being atypical every day, if you um, you know, love camaraderie and being part of a team. And there's that special, special feeling that goes with that. And I think that you guys experience that too, as NICU nurses, you know, there's, um, just backing up a little bit to the resiliency thing and, and, um, you know, the debriefing it's been my experience with the NICU teams and NICU nurses. And we've I've become friends with some of them over the years and gone to dinners and stuff like that with them. 
y'all are a very tight knit bunch. And I think that comes with, you know, um, experiences of the same thing, you know, like when you mm -hmm. work really hard all day, taking care of these super sick babies and you lose kiddos and you have, you know, you have love for these kids and they're in your heart and you, and it's not just kids, it's the parents. You, mm -hmm. you learn to, you quickly love these whole families and just to ride that roller coaster with them. You can't get through that experience and not become tighter. So I've seen that very same sort of energy when I hang out with these NICU teams and these NICU nurses and RTs that we experience as flight crews. There's, you know, a great way to get really close with a with your buddy is to stay up all night doing weird stuff, right? So that apply <laughs> that applies to work, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So um, so I would so to, to the nurse that's thinking, yeah, I think flight nursing would be great. Cool. Um, uh, if you think it'd be great, you'll probably be a really great one. Uh, you just be ready to work really hard and mm -hmm. to um, work on being, um, you know, try to be an expert in your field, wherever you are, wh whatever you're doing in that whatever moment, and then just keep climbing into different experiences. I see you in ER backgrounds and just stay super humble and, and work really hard and uh, keep aiming because it's absolutely worth it. So that's what I would say to those people. Um, uh, as far as our training goes and our education goes, we, again, I, you know, I feel like I, I hype LifeLink a lot, but um, rightly so. LifeLink's a really, really great company. So we have a phenomenal education department and uh, and have honed over the years, I continuously honed the precepting and the uh, orientation program and experience. So it starts with a couple weeks of classroom. Um, so 10 days of classroom and it is completely drink from the fire hose kind of experience. It's so it's all day long. It's lectures. It's, oh, it's, it's, uh, you know, welcome to transport critical care, you know, buckle up kiddos. It's a lot of information <laughs> coming at you hard and fast because you have to do that in order to fit it all in, uh, in those two weeks classroom. So, but the expectation isn't that you're going to pick it all up. It's like, okay, you're going to come back to this later in the field, but you need to be experienced, you experience it here first in the classroom. So our classroom stuff is really very good. And then you're out in the field with preceptors. And, um, and that is where we tailor your training to your specific needs. And so uh, earlier I talked about how nurses have typically a more difficult transition. So um, you'll usually pair a nurse up with another nurse because we can relate to your experience at least a little bit. Um, and help you transition from hospital nursing mindset and ICU nursing mindset to transport nursing mindset. And then vice versa, you know, with the, with the medics too, we'll do the same thing, you know, help them transition. They'll usually try to pair them up with another medic. And so um, we don't hold hard and fast to 13 weeks. We hold hard and fast to what does each individual need. So for some that trans, the, excuse me, that uh, preceptor time, that field time can be really short. If you got the perfect mix of flights if you uh, and a proper amount or a, a, a good amount of flight experiences in you know 12 weeks or 10 weeks and at at the end if your preceptor felt like yeah you know this person is at the at the competent stage whereas like you can make this person a part of a team where they're not alone you don't have to have all of the mm -hmm. answers by yourself in fact we never in real life we don't we have yeah part of a team so if, but if the preceptor feels like yeah this person can be a competent member of a team then um and as long as that individual feels that they agree with that um and there's some like there's some gray area in that too because you never feel 100 percent ready 
Um, but then the preceptor will say, yeah, um, we'll write their letter of saying recommendations. Yeah, yeah, they're ready to come off. But if you're struggling, um, uh, learning the material and transitioning to that, this kind of care, or if you're just not getting flights, because that's the thing, like you don't, you're not guaranteed patient exposure that day when you show up to work, like there are right. days I show up to work and I sit at the base for 12 hours and I don't go anywhere. <laughs> I and mean, that's just the reality of, of pre-hospital medicine. Yeah. And then there are days you show up and you get your ass handed to you. So there's, you know, there's that wide variance. So if, if it takes a long time for you to get the right kind of experiences and enough experience, then you may be on orientation for months. And that's when it can be really hard because you have okay. this, this person who, you know, like they're starting to feel discouraged and it's not because that they're doing anything wrong, but they're just like, when's it going to happen for me? And my answer always is, careful what you wish for, because on any <laughs> given day, this could all go sideways and, uh, and it's going to get, it's going to be bonkers. And it reminds me of a, a guy who is an amazing flight medic. His name's Adam. And he, I was his primary preceptor. And this guy, like from the, from the word go, like I could just tell like this guy's solid. He's super smart. He's really deeply experienced, but this guy had the worst luck catching flights <laughs> on orientation. I think he went for almost two months without doing a transport, which is oh unheard gosh. of. So it's just the worst of luck, the worst of luck. And I remember him coming into work one morning and his, like it was written all over his face. Like this dude was just down and I'm like, Hey man, you doing okay? And he's like, I'm just really, really discouraged. And he was actually thinking about like hanging it up. I'm like, dude, don't quit. Like you just are any the weirdest and longest slump that I've seen, but you're really, really good. Like we all know that you're going to be fine. We just got to get some experience for you. And so what yeah. we ended up doing with him is we just put him through a bunch of scenario work. Um, so simulation, high fidelity and, 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 and low fidelity simulation. And just to sort of feel like just mm -hmm. to really to put everybody's confidence in a good place. Like we needed to bolster Adam's confidence because he hadn't seen a patient in two months, you know, so we need to get him to a place where he feels like, okay, I do remember how to do this. And then, his performance gave us confidence too. Like you can assume like, yeah, this person, I see all of these signs that this person is going to be very good at this job, but sure helps to actually see that in practice, you know? So by him performing well in simulations, um, then we could all be like, yeah, we're pretty confident that we're right about Adam. And he is, he's, he's one of our best. Absolutely. Oh. That was great. So, yeah. So orientation can be really, really interesting in pre-hospital because you don't know when you're going to get a patient and you don't know what kind you're going to get, you know, it's oh, great yeah. if you get 13 flights in four weeks, but it's not great if they're all strokes. Right. Cause right. you need a some lot variation. more than stroke, right? You need, to, you need some yeah. variability. So. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> oh, it's been so interesting. <laughs> I, yeah. I used to want to do NICU flight and then mm -hmm. it's always been a thought, but now I'm over hospitals and everything i don't know the stress of of the high intensity i'm just like eh, i'm okay <laughs> yeah well, what about what about the autonomy don't you think you'd love the autonomy i do i know when i hear mm -hmm. well our the other guest was like talking about she was like yeah i place lines i can intubate and do all the things and i was like dang and you're not even mm. in, you don't have to go back to school to be an np yeah mm -hmm. so that all scares me yeah i think like I was the same way. Like I used to be like, oh, like once I get, you know, this many years of experience, I'll, I'll want to do flight nursing or transport nursing or whatever. But I feel like the older I get, the 
I don't know. I think I want less responsibility. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, okay. Like I know my stuff now, but still I'm like, I don't know. I, I want yeah. less sick babies and just like yeah. less, um, I don't know the word I'm looking for. Like chaos and like adrenaline, like, I guess mm. like those yeah. types of situations. But I think some people go the opposite way and they're like, give me more of that. That's why they want to be NPs. That's why they want to do flight nursing or yeah. whatever it is. But mm. Yeah, I don't think it's me, but but I I think it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Oh, cool. I know. Oh, this was so awesome. I could talk. I could hear you talk about this forever. <laughs> I know. I'm, I I still have like more questions, but <laughs> was, I know. This was but so great. Thank you awesome. so much for coming on, Keith. I I love that you having the invite. It's been a lot of fun for sure. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we got to let you get back to sleep. So you, because since you have to work tonight, you <laughs> <Yes>. are <laughs> <It's> crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. But yeah, this is great. Um, super excited to see you in a month. Me too. And uh, it's going to be a fun time. He's coming out to Colorado for cousin Aww. camping. Yeah. Cute. Um, have yeah. fun. It's very awesome. Yeah, we're stoked. Um, yeah. We'll have a great shift tonight. And um, thanks. thanks for listening, everyone. And we will. You'll hear us next week (laughs) (laughs) with something. (laughs) Bye guys. Bye. I feel like we got some good stuff in there. Maybe. This podcast is produced by Emily Richardson and Hannah Quirk. The intro music is by Dan Lemire. Please help us out and rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on Instagram at drunkordelirious or send us an email at drunkordelirious at gmail.com.